Hello, and welcome to Business Without Bullshit, where we take a sideways look at modern business, talking to founders and entrepreneurs about the problems they face and how they solve them. I'm Andy Uri, and alongside me is my co-host, Pippa Sturt. Hi, Andy. Hello. And a quick reminder, if you like what we do here, review us on Apple or Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Remember to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, at B-I-Z without B-S. So today we speak to Ted George, who is the founder and chief narrative officer of Kleos Advisory, providing thought leadership and strategic advisory on African markets, commodity value chains, and a range of disruptive technology. Drawing on more than 20 years of experience, Ted has a diverse range of specialities, including African and emerging markets, soft commodities, trade and trade finance, and ESG. He is also a media commentator and regularly appears as chairman, speaker, and moderator on the world conference and webinar circuits, as they are now. Born and bred in London, woohoo! Ted has a passion for travel and foreign languages, which has taken him across Europe, Latin America, and Africa. A linguist by training, he's fluent in Spanish, French, and Portuguese, and likes giving talks at universities and schools on his favorite subjects, the Cuban Revolution and Africa's digital transformation. His book, Stirring Up Sheffield, an insider's account of the battle to build the Crucible Theatre, which he co-wrote with his father, Colin George, is out now. We're in very good company indeed. Ted, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. I tell you, after that intro, I hope I can live up to it. Fucking hell. I mean, seriously, where do we start? From Cuba to the, uh, I mean, there's, there's lots to discuss here. So, I mean, a good place to start. What's keeping you busy right now? Well, at the moment, I'm working on a number of different projects. Uh, one of them is actually um, with the uh, Smart Africa and, and also with GIZ and the African Union. It's a digital economy index for Africa, and it's really looking at countries and seeing how developed are they with the digital economy. Very complex, lots of countries involved, but I'm also doing things like podcasts and webinars, and I am also working on another book as well, which is Rock and Roll. So, uh, yeah, quite a mix after doing the theatre, which was uh, the Crucible Theatre, the book which just came out. So let's wind the clock right back to newly minted Ted coming out as a doctor for the first time after your PhD, or maybe even before that. What was your first job? So first proper job, because um, I, I mean, as soon as I got my uh, national insurance card when I was 16, I started doing temp jobs. But my first proper job was uh, the Economist Intelligence Unit, uh, the EIU, which is part of the Economist Group, though it's not really the magazine. And I was a junior economist there in the Africa team. But I think the great thing about joining the EIU, I mean, I joined, I'd completed my PhD. I had, I had been writing for a while for them um, as a freelance author, but they really whipped me into shape. And I just tell you, when it comes to like academic excellence, the editors, the junior editors were brilliant, but also the sub-editors, the people who, you know, if they'd call them the workhorses, but they were the geniuses. They would give you back your text and like, that doesn't make sense. And, and you're like, yes, it does. And then you look at it, you're like, man, you're right. Man, it's, it's an amazing you know? magazine. This is where we get to the grammar, right? Oh yeah, yeah, totally. But I mean, the thing is they they really whipped me into shape. And the thing is, yeah, by the end of my time at The Economist, I was a senior economist and I knew my stuff. But sorry, I should, I should explain. I'm, uh, the, the Economist Intelligence is not the same as The Economist newspaper, which is uh, the one which comes out uh, weekly. But they do quote EIU statistics in there the whole time. And there is interconnection between the two. But the EIU is essentially an intelligence unit. And so we would be producing reports the whole time on the risk outlook and the economic outlook for all the countries. Is that America. how the business started or that was an extension to The Economist? It, it was an extension. I think it started back in 1945, the EIU. So it's been going for a long 
long time. Wow. Um, but the thing is, anyway, it, it, for me, it was just, you know, the top of the pile. It was absolutely the best place to, to, train. to, to train and learn. It was great. I just uh, really got amazing exposure and also to commodities. And then that's what actually then actually opened the door for me to go into banking. And in terms of what studying econ- uh, commodities as an economist... Well, this is the funny thing is, you see, I started working for the Economist Intelligence Unit as a junior economist, and I didn't have any economics qualification at all. Mm. Well, I was going to bring it up, but, you know, but, you know, in a weird way, do, do you, need, you just need an analytical, you know, we all go to university and study one thing and then go into life and do absolutely. something else. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, look, there's, there's a whole series of caveats there. It's not just suggest you can just waltz into a job, because the thing is, if you can't do your job, right, then you're useless. But the fact is, whether or not you necessarily have uh, the, the, the necessary qualification. I have a PhD in political science, right? Okay, so that's pretty close, but it's still not uh, economics in that sense. But the thing is, I had a lot of experience writing about things. And it's one thing, once you get to know stuff, you know how to write about stuff. So when it came to the opportunity to actually apply and be a proper economist rather than just a freelance writer, I did actually reach out to the the woman in charge of the department and just said, look, I don't have any economics, but I've actually just started a course at Birkbeck. Is that good enough? And she's like, yeah, because you're already writing for us. You're obviously committed. We'll whip you into shape. And they did. Okay. (laughs) But they took a chance. You know, they took a chance. You mentioned something interesting that you're left-handed. Do you think this, um, I mean, your writings, this have any part to play, How, you know, in this uh, ability or in, in, in switching, you know, your role, do you think? I mean, completely so. Listen, being left-handed is, I just think, a massive hidden advantage that I've had my entire life. The thing is, people don't think a big deal of it. When you're a kid, everyone always notices, oh, you're left-handed because you screw things up. You can't use this, you can't, can't use, use that, all, all those other kind of things. No, not your left foot, your right foot, you know, all that kind of stuff. But the thing is, over, you know, over the years, once you get to be a teenager, no one even notices it. it. You know, it just kind of disappears. But the thing you've got to understand about being a left-hander is from the very start in your life, the whole world is designed the wrong way for you. You see, the world isn't left or right-handed. It doesn't care. Human society is right-handed, and it's everything. I mean, it's not just the writing. It's very difficult to do. You have to find the right way to hold the pen. People do it differently. But handles on doors, how you button up things, trying to unscrew jars, scissors. I mean, God, I almost cut my thumb off trying to use the scissors properly, right? So the thing is, it means as a left-hander, from the very beginning, you have to be an innovator. And you always assume at the start you're going to get it wrong. So I've seen Mm. right-handers, they get so frustrated at this thing, and I'll pick it up and I'm like, okay, it didn't work that way. What about this way? No, maybe not that one. You always assume that, oh, no, I got it wrong. Well, maybe I'll try it this way, right? And I've come up with amazing fixes, and I've met left-handers like, man, how did you do that? Just like a really clever twist on it. So it makes you an innovator. And so I think that just means every time that you come up against an obstacle, you always assume, oh, it's not because I know what I'm doing. It's just maybe I'll try this way. Okay. So, but the thing is, as you go on in time, actually being a left-hander does have a huge advantage in sport. Um, I mean, it's already noticed, you know, someone says left-hand tennis player or something, but I used to do fencing and it was fascinating to see that the thing is with fencing, when you're a right-hander as fencing, you see a 180 degree image of yourself. So your sword is pointing at that person's chest and their sword is pointing at your chest. But if you fence a left-hander, you're fencing in the mirror. Your sword is facing their sword. So right-hander's like, "Uh, where do I go? But as a left-hander, that's all I'm used to. You actually get them under the arm. That's how you do it, right? So what you found is, particularly in junior competitions, you have loads of people at the beginning. You get to the finals, everyone would be a left-hander, right? Oh, wow. But then everyone loses the advantage because suddenly you're back to the 180 degrees. And so people- He's rubbish. Yeah, so everyone is someone who's whipping everyone's ass suddenly can't even get a point because like, what? You know, but you would find very often in certain sports, particularly fencing, all the top people are left-handed. It's such a simple point. If you took boxing or whatever that, yeah, how often would you box a left-hander? Not that often. Whereas a left-hander is always boxing right-handed. So you just, yeah, okay, genius. 
But so I'm just saying, I've always seen it as an advantage, but it's funny. I remember once um, I was with an American school and the teacher said, oh yeah, you'd, you'd be considered disabled in the States. I'm like, disabled? This is one of my hidden advantages. Malcolm know? Gladwell's really missed a trick there with his whole, depends when you were, in the year you were born, at what point in the year you were born, how good you yeah. are at sport. yeah. Didn't take into account the Overlay the left really. and the right-handers. But I think in business as well, I'm just saying, I really do think it, it, it plays a part in my innovative approach to life. But, you know, it, but from the start, I'm just saying from the beginning, I had to be an innovator. All left-handers are. Right, Jesus, that was amazing. Uh, what do you think is your biggest failure? What's your biggest cock-up? Well, the thing is, it's interesting, this point about failures, because I would say, if I, I, you know, I've definitely had cock-ups uh, in my career, but I'd say, if I'm really honest, all the big cock-ups have actually been the springboard to my biggest successes. And it's because very often they've actually forced me to go big, because that's the only way to get out go of this Go big or go home. Yeah. Go big or go home. It's like, man, well, now basically the spotlight's on me. Either I perform or I'm completely done. And so, I mean, it's been a number of occasions in that, but I think that an example is actually getting into the Economist Intelligence Unit. So when I first wanted to be uh, an author, I'd got in touch uh, with a guy, Douglas, who was uh, the author for Angola. And he said, you know what? I'll sneak you along to the Christmas party at the Tower for The Economist, get to meet Pat, who's the head of the department, and see if you can impress her, right? So he said, you use my, um, uh, my ID card. I'll say I've forgotten it, and I'll use my um, business card, which is, you know, you could do that in those days. So we got up there, and there weren't many people there at the beginning. He said, go on, now's your chance. So she was not very happy to see me. She's like, what are you doing here? You're not even an author. And I thought, okay, well, I'll give it my best pitch. So I gave my pitch and she said at the end, I remember, Ted, you're a really interesting young man, but let me tell you something, you will never work for the EIU. Ooh. And that was my first experience of an warning shot. My first experience of an EIU forecast. Right, yeah. <laughs> harsh, <laughs> harsh, very harsh thing. Very harsh. But the thing is, it got me on the radar. And then later, after I was writing reports, there was an opportunity to go for a job in another department. And when she found out, she was furious. She's like, I thought you wanted to be Africa department. And she was absolutely livid until somebody who was a good friend of hers who also knew me said, No, no, you're crazy. He might go to another department. You need to consider him seriously. And it just changed changed it. So on one level, there was a time I thought, oh my God, I'm literally going to get fired as an author. She's so angry. Two months later, when the opportunity came up, she now saw me as a candidate. So I think the point is that was a cock up, but at the same time, it really paid off. And I think sometimes it's more important to get the message across than how you get it across. Yeah. Okay. You get the message across in terms of just, you're going to upset people, just say say something sometimes. But you've got to get on the radar. And the thing is, it was great. So when the opportunity came up, they needed an Angola specialist. And so, you know, I called her up and she said, yeah, we'll take you on and we'll give you a chance. I mean, no one assumed I was the, uh, the, the done deal. But I think it's just, it had changed her opinion. And it was because actually I'd forced the issue. And so that's happened a few times in my life where I've inadvertently forced the issue. I mean, it's a tightrope, isn't it? Because she could have made an enemy for life there with her going this you know, upstart little... Indeed. But I think the bottom line is I wasn't trying to, you know, subterfuge or, or undermine anyone. I was trying to get a job, you know? But I think the basic point I would say here is that you need to learn from your mistakes, right? And the thing is, if you don't learn from them, then in fact, you're just going to be, uh, you know, cock up the rest of your life. I think maturity is when you recognise a really bad mistake because you're making it for the second time. You're like man, how did I end up here exactly again, mm. right? And at that point is when you've got to really work out what it is. And sometimes it's a subtle thing. It's very easy when something goes wrong. Let's say you blow a really good opportunity, you blow an interview or something like that, that you're like, it's not my fault I was put under this pressure or this person did that. And in fact, when you look back at it, it's like I didn't have the strength to stand up to them and say, no, I couldn't do it at that time or I didn't have the honesty to do this or it, it might be something actually about your character and it might be quite hurtful to address it. But if you do, 
you never make that mistake. So it's about also taking responsibility for your fuck up, right? Completely. But and that the thing is, it's subtle. Sometimes it takes months or years afterwards. You're like, actually, this is what I really did wrong. Because, you know, you can look at a sequence of events and the end bit where you cock up, you, the, the 10 moves beforehand, you did nothing wrong, but it was the 11th back where you knew that you shouldn't do this thing, but you didn't want to upset someone or you weren't thinking clearly because you were focusing on something else or, you know, you didn't put in the work when you knew you had to. But it always comes back to a point where you can see, actually, that is something I have to admit. And the thing is, if you address it, hopefully you don't make the mistakes again. And so as you go through life, it's not so much being a success. It's just a lot less cock-ups. So what do you find most uncomfortable about your business? I think the whole thing that the buck stops with you, right? Um, mm. You know, I, I've worked in two long-term permanent jobs, one for a bank, one for the EIU. And, you know, no matter how much th there might always be the risk of them shutting down your department or, you know, downsizing, you have that sense of security. And the fact is, when it's your business, that's it. The buck stops with you. So it's, um, yeah, it, it can be really sobering. I mean, there's nothing like waking up in the morning in a little financial shock. You know, you'll be wide awake. And, so, and uh, you know, it's almost like having a health you know, it just gets you motivated. Do you have a team under you at the moment or you in business? Well, in terms of employment, the, the way I face employment is I haven't employed anyone, not at this particular point. Um, one thing I really learned from my sisters when they set up their different businesses is that basically you only need to be as big as you need to be. Mm -hmm. And particularly because of the kind of work I do, which ranges from, uh, you know, working on reports with different people to doing um, uh, podcasts, etc. I don't need a permanent staff. I mean, I was planning to start putting them on just before COVID. I, I set up in October 2019, so COVID kicked in. But the thing is, I work with a whole you set series. up in October 2019 as... Which business? As Kleos Advisory. And as Kleos yes. Advisory. And so you're always acting independently working for other people, is it? Uh, yeah, no, no, but it's, it's different sometimes. Uh, so I have a number of collaborators who I collaborate with. I have some economists. I have some researchers as well. Sometimes I give them bits of work. I also work regularly with certain companies like GTR, uh, Global Trade Review. I, do, I chair different conferences in Africa for them. And then I sometimes work with startups. It's um, mind-bending what you do. It's, in like, it's so multidimensional, but at the end of the day, you... You have built a career on having knowledge on particular subjects, I would guess. Well, I mean, it's a lot of different things, but I think look, it, all, it all comes down to thought leadership. And the thing thought is, thought leadership. leadership is one of these terribly overused words. And mm. in fact, a lot of people, if you say, I'm a thought leader, you just want to punch him in the face. Yes. But okay, I'll get ready to punch me in the face. I am someone who works in thought leadership and helps people in there. And the thing is, thought leadership is different from something like marketing or, um, uh, or publicity. Uh, people who do that are really, really good at getting it out there, getting the impact, but it's about the message. And the thing about thought leadership is um, where I work with particularly startups as well, let's say you are uh, some kind of fintech or some kind of disruptive company. If you want to get out to the market, you might be just before series A, uh, you might just be in your early stages. How do you get on people's radar? If you're like, hi, we're a new fintech, who cares, right? There's thousands of them. Hi, I've got a new product. Even worse, who wants to hear about a new product? Yawn, right? It's different if you say, hi, there is this big problem out there and we are part of the solution. And this is the kind of technology we use. And this is how we use it. And you try and position yourself Ooh, like as part that. of thought leadership. So it means if you're doing something like a podcast or an event, it's not just that you're banging on your product. Of course, you're going to do a bit of that. But there's a relevance. You're talking about a problem that needs to be solved yeah, that so has people some are value. Gonna, yeah. So people are going to learn something. In other yeah. words, they're going to come to the webinar not just to get a pitch. They're going to actually hear and understand. And what you try and demonstrate is how you're part of this kind of ecosystem. So that's not easy to do, right? 
That's not the sort of thing you can do from, um, you know, a search on the internet and getting in a couple of junior analysts. That is based on my 30 years of research and, and all the different things I've done. And structuring that into a story which is engaging and clear. So I could come to you as a startup and you'd look at it and go, okay, you got this product, you got this thing. Well, from my experiences, I know of this problem in this area of the world or in this industry, or is it they will already have that and you structure how they tell the story? Or? It's a bit of both. It's, it's a, a bit, bit of both. both. But it's amazing, for example, how bad so many startups are at telling their story. And I don't blame them because the thing is, yeah. when you start up, Sorry. you usually start up, let's say, with one particular product or something that you're pushing. But every startup has much bigger ambitions than that. So people start telling their story and before you know it, you actually find that they're talking about doing multiple different things. You don't even know what they're about. Mm. So narrowing it down, actually working out what the message is and then articulating that in an interesting way. Yeah, that's what the core of being a chief narrative officer is. I mean, founders, you've got to be nuts to be an entrepreneur. I'm mean, talking about people being nuts. And you, generally the founder or the person, they generally do have a problem they want to solve. I mean, that's generally my experience. And you you absolutely. would you draw it out of them. Well, it? much more so. But listen, I, there are lots of founders out there who are absolutely brilliant. Okay, they do this naturally. They obviously don't need my help. It's very much for companies which are coming out, particularly very technical ones. Because, um, you know, I, I did um, a web webinar, let's say, about 18 months ago for a company in West Africa, Manobi. Uh, they do what is called fidgetal agriculture, physical and digital, if wow. you like. It's all the digitalization. Wow. But there was so much about uh, that I worked with them. Um, the guy, Daniel Anderose, who works there, he's absolutely brilliant speaker. But working with him, we came up with a really nice structure for how you present it and how you position this as a kind of leading technology. You know, it's all about why is this technology relevant? Why do you need us? Not, here's my product. So that is really complex. It's not just there's a simple answer there. You need to work through it. And so in some ways, I think it's a bit of a hidden art. If you do it really well, people don't really realize what you're doing. That's cool. I like that. I mean, in a way, it's 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 sort of drawing out because generally you do meet people in it. it. Maybe it's, if you heard it from the founder, it would sound great, but you don't. You look at a website and it's like, oh, we got this product and some picture of a you know, whatever. It's just all a bit uh, cliched the whole time sort of thing. So trying to draw that out and giving that sort of consultancy. So the, it's the background, I guess, you have in understanding the dimensions, shapes and, and the storytelling of, of economical or political ideas sort of thing, you know. But the thing is, it all comes down to storytelling. I mean, my mum always used to say to me, uh, you know, Ted, you tell a good story. And there would always be some irritation there, but just a little bit of pride as well. Because, yes, it's all about being able to tie it together in a clear story. And very often when I give presentations at conferences, people say afterwards, oh, yeah, it was a really good story. You tied it together. Well, that's the only way anyone's going to remember anything, yeah. to be honest, right? Because I, there are some brilliant analysts I've seen who've given amazing presentations. And at the end, the only thing that people can say is lots of data. Lots of really good data, but like, did you take anything? Yes, Whereas so what I that find, means is yeah. I was asleep through the whole of it. Yeah, yeah. But also, no, maybe it was interesting, but nothing was tied together. Whereas people yeah. come to me and say, yeah, there was this one point you said this. Great. That's what I'd want as feedback. So I could never expect that people are going to remember everything I say. But if you tie it together in a story, which is relevant, oh, you that's tie it together. It's not a question of coming to the end saying, oh, and obviously this bit, this bit all comes together. Yeah. It's giving a common narrative to the sure. entire thing. That's totally. Because, for example, if you're going to give an outlook on Africa, I hate it when just someone says, and that was trade, so I'm done. Thank you. Like, what? You're just going to finish there? No. Mine would be starting out with a macro and showing how that's tying into what's going on. It feeds through into trade. And so when you get onto whatever you want to finish with, which is always something a bit more interesting, you tie the themes together and then you give that kind of final outlook and that final message. So a lot of it is kind of natural, but that's how people will remember things. If you just give them a series of these are slides about different things, yeah, they're not going to remember anything. And now a quick word from our sponsor. 
one-stop shop for all your legal and accounting needs. If you're in the UK or overseas, Hoori Clark, Hoori Clark, the one-stop shop for all your legal and accounting needs. If your company's big or small, they can help you all. Straight Talking Financial Advice since 1935. And that was the amazing Christopher Reese. Big up, Chris. Spell R-E-E-S. At this point, let me quickly remind you to look him up and start following and listening to all his music because he's amazing. And maybe when you're doing that, go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and click follow so you never miss an episode. But mainly, go and check his shit out. Now, back to the chat you've done quite a lot of different things. I can now sort of see a thread to them, you know, language, um, cultures, uh, you know, communication, you know, I mean, there's a lot about what you talk to is communication, but I mean, what's, what's been the worst? Has it been a crap bit? Has there been, you know, a bit of your job in your career that's been very difficult for a few years and you had to get out or anything like that? Absolutely. And I'm literally right at the end of it now. So, <laughs> oh, really? Uh, yeah. That little thing called COVID, oh, you know, so um, I could got to say it was uh, an absolute uh, Armageddon for my business. So I, I uh, finally left the Bank Echo Bank in, I think it was February 2019. In October, I was finally ready to set up my business. I'd taken a few months off and I already had a few clients. Um, set up the business, first quarter pretty good, second quarter lockdown of the entire world. And I think I realized before most people, but I wasn't the first to realize that the game was up, probably about mid-January, because there, mm. you know just one conference I was involved in was canceled because of COVID. And I suddenly thought, hold on. And then I realized mm. everything was canceled. So yeah, that was terrifying because I suddenly realized that almost my entire business had gone up in smoke. And if you're a, a consultant, you're the first to be shown. Yeah, the yeah, okay, if there's a hard time. So, you know, what, you're going to call anyone saying, hi, is there any work? They're like, we don't know if we're going to be in business in a week's time. Yeah, yeah. Know? So that was, uh, yeah, terrifying moment. Fancy some thought leadership? You know, it's like, <laughs> wow. yeah, yeah. Well, funny enough, yes. So that was one <laughs> yes. thing which I did manage to do. It turns out some people do want that, you know, I had some things left over. But I, for me, I had a very comforting thought relatively early on, just before lo- the first lockdown came in, which was a really shocking time for everyone. Yeah, you know, people yeah, really didn't know how now. to deal with it. But it was just, I was sitting, um, you know, just looking through the phone and it was like, the government is offering special support to these people and to the aviation and to entertainment and to small, you know, not even small businesses. And I'm thinking, when am I going to get any support? And then I suddenly thought, hold on everyone is screwed. Mm. And then I thought through everyone I knew, even really rich people, they're really worried about their investments and then this person worried about their job. And I suddenly thought, if everyone's screwed, no one's screwed. And by that, I mean, it's not that we're not screwed. We are, okay, maybe generations later. But I realized in that moment, no one was going to evict me. My children weren't going to starve. They weren't going to cut off my electricity or take away my phone, right? We're under lockdown, right? I'm going to survive this one. There was an infinite margin for negotiation. And so I sat down, I looked at uh, my budget, I looked at the really big payments I had, and there were a couple of companies, I called them up, and I just said, essentially, I want to pay half for the next six months. But the the thing is, they said, yes. And I said, I will repay the additional amount at a later point. But what was interesting is one of them actually said to me, God, thanks for calling up and actually setting this up rather than just hiding, you know, and not doing it. But the point is, it meant I actually had some visibility for six months. and then try to rebuild the business. But I'm saying that, I think that's the real thing about when you, uh, when you respond to adversity. Every time I've hit adversity, I've been through four um, big recessions. When I left school, early 90s, there was the dot-com bu- bubble burst, there was 2008, you know, and then all these different ones. Each time it happens, a real crisis, I must have always thought the same thing, which is, I'm not going to get out of this one. 
Han Solo when uh, right at the beginning of Empire Strikes Back is like, I don't know how the hell we're going to get out of this one. You know, he's just, he says to Chewie, he's just like, okay, I might have nixed everything beforehand, like totally no problem, but this time, this is it. I don't know how we're going to get out of this one. But I think the thing is, when it just came up to, you know, that COVID moment, which everyone faced, I suddenly realized it was very binary. It's either this is the end of me, or this has to be the making of me. Mm. So that was it. But the truth is, it's been really hard. And of all the difficult things, I'm sure all startups go through this, is just keeping the faith when it's really hard. Because, you know, the start of 2021 was, that was really hard. We started in the middle of lockdown, right? So I knew I had more homeschooling to come. Hooray, right? But also all business was drying up yet again. So one year you can just take about a really hard hit, a second year in a row. But there were so many different startups or, or other companies I spoke to at the time. And they all said to me the same thing. They just said, keep the faith. It comes back. You keep pushing out the energy there. It comes back. And I must say, it is coming back. Yeah. And it has been for the last six months. But I think for anyone, basically, who's in a startup, you just need to accept that those moments are going to come, that it really tests you. You're like, whatever you may have said to other people, I'm not going to be able to make this, that this isn't going to work. And then you find a way. So what's the one thing in the world that you would change if you could? Um, I think it just comes back to the biggest issue which everyone's been talking about rightly for the last few years, which is climate change, but particularly uh, people's behaviour towards climate change. Because if we talk about people's attitudes, they have changed enormously. There are still parts of the world where people are complete deniers of climate change, but even those people would say very clearly they don't want to destroy the planet and they don't want to destroy all the animals in the forest, etc. There's just disagreement over what is actually causing it. But the trouble is, it's about behaviour. It's just that it's still the case. Deforestation is accelerating and it's been accelerating during COVID. The thing is, is it really being covered? Greenhouse gases are continuing to shoot up. I mean, this is why Greta Thunberg gets so annoyed, but mm. I can understand why. She's saying since she started her protest, then a year and a half later, they have increased emissions, right? Nothing is happening to change it. And if you think of the individual, I'm saying, right, like one of the easiest things, do you have green power in your household? Easiest thing. Of course, you can just switch to a green supplier now. Do we do it? Virtually no one's done it. And I'm afraid I'm guilty as charged as well. Mm. But it's just like, it's the easiest thing. It's probably going to be about half an hour of your life. You go online, you check something, you check in. They're like, I've tried. We I think you. I have it. I pay extra for it to all cool. be green. But you wouldn't even necessarily have to pay extra. But the point is, if you oh, do damn. that as a consumer, you create a market for all of these renewable companies. So the thing is, the companies are only providing what people yeah, are going yeah. to pay for them. But I'm just saying that's one thing. But even people who do bullshit recycling, where they don't, you know, they don't really properly recycle, or they put stuff in which can't be recycled, so in the end they definitely know it's going to get chucked away. I'm saying if we all change that behavior, it has a massive impact. So that's the thing I'd love to change. I don't know. I don't know how you change. Do you know, behavior. I think part of that would be if we had, if we, it feels like there's an endless amount of stuff we're doing wrong. So where you end up feeling like, well, you know, it's like finger in a dam feeling. Paralyzed. 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 A, million, a million fingers in a dam can make a huge difference. Right? Well, yeah. actually, weirdly, they've got a website now, the government's put it up to everyone to sign up and pledge. And, you know, you scroll down the page about what the hell should you do? Well, actually, interesting, there's like eight things. They're like, okay, these are the eight things you should be doing as a business. And it's like, I've, honestly, I almost caught my breath again. I was like, I can handle that. That's, yeah. that's a list. Totally. You know, and yeah. it, was, it wasn't crazy. It was like, you know, recycle properly, change your energy supply, LED lights, cycle to work scheme. It was just like, oh yeah, yeah. And then because the list ended and then there's anything you can't do, uh, anything you can't do anything about, you know, maybe aircraft travel or something offset, you know, and then here's some, oh, I felt better. So it just, I think, I, I, I do think that we will take a long time to change. I mean, the Germans are very good at following rules. I mean, the Brits are a bit, I mean, again, you end up being a bit culturally, so a bit, 
it's, it's bloody true. Do you know what I mean? And when I was in um, Switzerland, no one, everyone goes 60, you know, two miles below the speed limit and then I crossed over the border into Italy and down to Bolzano. Everybody drives People like a lunatic. In white vans. Like, he was like, oh, oh, yeah. am I back in England? Because you're yes. like, fuck it, man. <laughs> and I was like, oh, the Italians and the Brits have something in common. We're both rebels. Yeah. We're really rebellious and we have this total like, hey, mind you, they just, they just, they, for some reason, they don't drink like crazy like us. But anyway, yep. yeah, that's a really. I think. I, I, I think. I think. I think that's a great thing to wish to change, just to appeal to people to make that little bit of effort. Sure, but the thing is, it's all about making the first step. But I'm just saying that's the thing I wish could change because I honestly don't know how to do it. Okay, right? And look, I mean, look, I've made a note to yeah, myself. Okay. I must go back after this interview and change my power. Okay, otherwise, you know where I'm standing. But look, guilty as charged. I'm saying human beings are hypocrites the whole time. But I think the other thing I would love to see change, and it's related to this, is how do we change the mind of people who do not believe in climate change? Mm. And uh, so I don't want to go into that argument here. I'm just saying it's difficult. So, best piece of advice you've ever been given? Okay, so best piece of advice is an interesting one. It's something which has become a bit of a mantra for me as well, and it's just very simply, do not fear. So, I first came across it. There was an amazing guy called Rui dos Santos. Um, he runs a company called Sistech, which is a, a technology company in Angola. So, the incredible thing is he was telling me about how he first set up his first uh, IT training center in 1995. And the thing is, he set it up in Wamble. So, the war had been going on in early 1995. There was what was called the 55-day war. About 1,500 people were killed or injured. Huge destruction. They finally signed a peace. And at the end of the year, the UN went in, UN peacekeepers, and he went with them. And he set up an IT training center and they were training Windows 95. And this is 1995, right? That's how cutting edge it was. And the thing is, obviously, very quickly, it became an internet center where people started using a cafe before any of the other country had it. And I remember saying to him, man, that's incredibly brave. He said, well, you know, you've got to be brave. And I, I remember saying to him, yeah, you've got to have real balls. And he's like, no, no, it's not about balls. Not at all. This is not about bravado. He said there were risks. We had to calculate, you know, our strategy, but you need to act and you need to act without fear because fear is what holds you back. And it really stayed with me. And I thought about it a lot over the years. You know, we've talked about public speaking or, or different things that people are terrified of doing and that the way you kind of undermine yourself by fear. And um, Will Smith says a brilliant thing um, uh, in an online interview you can see. He was talking about, you know, what is on the other side of fear? He's saying it's actually bliss. Because, you know, he was talking about the, the instance where he suddenly decided he was going to skydive the next day and then worried about it endlessly right up until the moment he did it. And then he's like, why did I do that? There was nothing mm. wrong with it, you know. But I think when you think about what is, what is fear, what is on the other side of fear, what is on the other side of fear is nothing. There's nothing on the other side of fear. It's entirely in your head. The amount of times you've wound yourself about this big, big interview you've got and it goes fine or the presentation's okay or, oh my God, this is going to be a disaster and no one even mentions it. See, I, I agree with that, but I also think that part of the reason things go well when they do is because you've worried about them. That's yeah, true. But, yeah, but I would say this is it. Fear's a great motivation. You, yeah, I agree Yeah, because you work yeah. your ass off to get it right. Indeed, but the whole point is fear needs to be behind you, pushing mm -hmm. you, right? It can't be standing in front of you. And I think one of the reasons, you know, that people fear certain things is because, for me, what is on the other side of fear? Success. That's why I'm so terrified. Yeah. If you're going out for that really big interview, that really good opportunity, trying to close a deal, trying to win someone over, really, really essential, right? You're so worried about losing that success that it can become too much. And there are times people, you know, they say, you didn't turn up on the day. You were there, but you were trying to get through the process so fast because you were just so terrified about it. You know, if you turn up somewhere and say, oh, it was an intimidating building, the building doesn't know it's intimidating you. 
You know, she mm. was very intimidating. No, you were intimidated by her. She was just a bit grumpy, right? She, you were the fifth candidate that day. Yeah. You can project all that sort of stuff on there. And so I think this is just, it comes down to the fact that it, when you have to act and make a decision, you use a completely different part of your brain from when you're considering options. You can consider options until, you know, for years and years. But when you say, I'm going to do this, it uses a different part of the brain and it feels different. When you say, yes, I'm going to take the job, something like that, you close the other, uh, other series of doors as well. And so the point is you just have to accept that it's going to be a jolting change, but do not let fear stand in your way. Because I think the thing is that if you consider, if you have a challenge, if you have an opportunity, consider your options, you consider the risks, you make your plan, and then you act without fear. Because if you act without fear and you have that approach in life, then fortune always favors the brave. I think um, that's really interesting. I think you're talking about procrastination, which is a really complex problem. And as I understand it, it, is, it's, um, it requires lots of different parts of the brain to sort of come together in a moment, apparently. And fear drives a lot. Fear of failure, fear of this is, is a lot. But there's, there's a load of reasons. If you look at procrastination, it's like, you know, there's like 10 things that need to go on to come together. But it's, it, what's really nice about that is just simpling it down to say, well, the big thing in front of you, really, yeah, that, that, that feeling of fear, just that feeling of sort of, you know, just fucking do it. You know what I mean? You've just got to do it. But, You've I mean, done the logic. Make your plan, yeah. But the thing is, I mean, you know, it's not, you look before you leap, yeah? Okay? Yeah. Take, make your plan. But sometimes you've got to go into a situation where you've got a 90% chance of failure, right? Okay, well, if you know that, then you go in and you turn it around. It's very different from just saying this is going to be a disaster. So mm. as soon as you're envisioning it's going to go wrong, you can guarantee it will be. So what are your top three reads, top three pods? Top three reads. Well, I mean, uh, it was interesting. I was having a think about that. I, I have quite an eclectic reading thing. So uh, the three books actually I'm currently reading at the moment or, I've, or some I've just finished. They're actually all from the 40s and 50s. I hope that's okay. Um, Very first cool. one, um, uh, novel, um, My Flute and My Bones by um, Edgar Mitterholzer. He, uh, Mitterholzer. he was a, a Guyanan writer, also British as well. And it's a great kind of... Uh, like a horror, like a horror novel from the 1950s. Essentially, they're they're in Guyana. They go up the stream, like up to the heart of darkness. And there's basically these this weird sound of a flute which is constantly playing. And people who hear it eventually end up following the flautist and dying. And it's all about what is the evil spirit and how we're going to appease it. But um, it's great. It's very free. Feels like they should make a film. Yeah, they might have. I mean, the thing is also he had a very tragic life as well. And, and he actually wrote several times about his own suicide and death and then eventually did set fire oh, to himself geez. as well. So Set fire to yourself? That's okay, not the way to do it. Indeed. No so, so On to the next one. That just adds to the right. power of the book anyway. So it's a great book, a Guyanese writer. Uh, second one is um, The Empty Space by Peter Brook, 1968. I'm delighted to say Peter Brook is still with us. He's one of the foremost kind of creative and avant-garde direct theatre directors, mm -hmm. particularly uh, in France, you know, from the... 40s, 50s onwards. He's still with us today. And he wrote this book, uh, The Empty Space, back in 1968. But there's one thing he said earlier on in the book that really stuck with me. It's about this thing of meaning when you're putting on a production and meaning. He said, meaning has never belonged to the past. It always belongs to the present. And I like that because there are people saying, you can't do the production that way because it was meant to be done this way. Doesn't matter. It's now. You want to have a black woman playing Hamlet? Go ahead. Doesn't matter. It's now. I mean, have you ever gone to see a Shakespeare and just occasionally someone says a line and everyone laughs because it relates to something which has also just happened recently, mm. you know? Mm. And it's just like it resonates after all those years, you know? Yeah. So I just think it's really interesting what he said, this thing about meaning. It's like we change the meaning the whole time. And then the final one um, is a, a very strange biography, uh, 1949 by Jane Lane called Titus Oates. You ever heard of Titus Oates? Mm -hmm, the rebel. 
Uh, no, not the rebel. No, he was basically the biggest scoundrel who's ever lived in. Oh, that's right. He history. Just, the Popish the plot. The Catholic thing. The Catholic yes. plot. This goes back tell to... Tell me, tell me, tell me. Well, it, just, it goes back to 1678. This guy was basically T- a, a... Total fiction. Total fiction. He essentially claimed that he'd been among the Jesuits and that there was a plot to murder the king, Charles II, and replace him with James II. And he oh, he's in Britain, this bloke. This yeah, is yeah. in England, yes. Yeah. This is in England. This is uh, like 1678. Well, it's an excuse to basically round up and, and Yeah, and so Catholics. he started a massive thing and he told a ridiculous tale. He had a lot of blackguards along with him. Uh, William Bedloe, a guy called Israel Tongue. I mean, it's just incredible people. And of course, Judge Jeffries was there. Judge Jeffries was the guy who finally brought him down at the end, the guy known for the bloody assizes. But the thing is, I mean, he was horrendous what he did. And I think more than 22 people were executed, actually, as part whoa, whoa, of the so guy was, was we, yeah. this guy was already part... He was already a powerful person. Or? No, he came from nothing. He'd actually been kicked out of the uh, the, the, the military, uh, the navy, for doing dodgy stuff as well. Uh, you know, no, he was a failure. He was an absolute brilliant bullshitter. But he could take information. He could remember things incredibly. And the thing is, he just went and got in front of the Privy Council and did the most incredible snake oil salesman. I mean, for me, he's a figure completely of our time. That's a very a nice um, what and created a movement. The Privy yeah, Council basically convinced is a everyone that they were under attack because everyone was paranoid anyway and just kept on building on it okay so that brings us to our favorite part of the show the business versus bullshit quick far round d cue the music this is where we list key terms and this is when we're going to reel off these terms and all you need to tell us is whether you think it's business or bullshit okay understood are you ready bring it on beautiful diversity quotas uh business Yes, that, that's the law of the land and it's the way things are going. And yeah. also, I don't have a problem with diversity. No, absolutely. Stand-up meetings. Oh, bollocks, sorry. Uh, bullshit. Coffee. Oh, uh, wonderful, I was going to say. So how could be... coffee be... How It has to be business. Coffee's everything. Kava means life in some countries. Is that business or bullshit? Business. Business, yeah. Business, yeah. yeah. Agendas. Political agenda, business. Agenda for the day, bullshit. Hour-long meetings. Bullshit, half an hour meetings. Yeah. And tops. 40, 40, 45 minutes. Oh, no, no. what wastage. No, half an hour. Office dogs. What? Well, you know, they can relax people. Uh, but who I've looks got after one. them when everyone goes home at night? Uh, no, they they come home. People have dogs. They just come in for the day. Oh, bring like bring your child. Yeah, bring not your, like bring they, your dog they, they don't the live here and you know fix the plumbing or anything. Um, bullshit. I think maybe. How dare you? It's just. I mean, it's rude. Sorry, is your dog here now? He's not. He he should be. He'd be upset. He's listening. He'll uh, listen. Don't worry. Don't yeah, worry, Romeo. Okay. Hang in there. Carbon credits. Oh, God, that's a really hard. One. Okay, big. Frickin' business in the future, big time. Swearing in meetings. Bullshit. Okay. Uh, sorry, um, uh, excrement. Oh, Swearing in meetings. Y- yeah. I, well, you know, I'm, you, you're right. I'm not liking these answers. 
<laughs> sorry, it's just not not what you expected. Eh? Sorry, it's just upsetting. I mean, no office dogs, no swearing in meetings. It's never gonna, it's never gonna work out. I think. No, I'm, no, I'm, no. But no swearing in meetings. It opens up. Uh, how about passive aggressive put downs? Mm. Passive aggressive put downs. We could put Some, that. On no, but I'm saying that's much better than swearing. You say something which is a passive aggressive put down, which irritates the hell out of everyone, but no one can talk about it. So much more effective. Than it's using it's as far, swearing. far more cunning than my fucks. Um, pub lunches. Great. Uh, oh, biz. Mm. Business or bullshit? Remember the game. Depends on the business. Ooh. Okay, so that's it. Business. business. Sorry, I'm. All, I'll have a pub. I'm lunch finally anyway. with you. Ding! You're back in the game. Excellent. B corps. Have you heard of these? These are um, a thing that's come out of America, which is that companies sign up to a set of values um, across them. Across them, you know, a B corp. So I'm not just here for profit. I'm here for you know triple bottom line and all of that. I think you lost me when you said this is something that came out of America. Okay. Bullshit. Bullshit. NDAs. I'm afraid business, but actually they're bullshit. But they are Correct. business. Yes. I, 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 I think we're going to have to have a special rating for them because that's what everyone, everyone accepts their bullshit. But, but you need them. And you also, need yeah, them. I'm happy to sign NDAs. Uh, yeah, I'll sign anything. I'll sign any NDA you want. It's fine, okay? It's yeah. Fine. No, it, it gives you comfort. Have comfort. Why would I not give comfort to a client? It makes you look weak, though. It makes you look like you don't know what you're doing. So don't bother with them. No, but it's just signing a piece of paper saying what you would get from me anyway, you're going to get because you get integrity. I'm not going to. There's stuff I know that people have told me that they told me because they know I'm not going to tell anyone else. It's in my memory bank and it's not coming out. The NDA, NDA doesn't affect that. No, the thing is, I can't unknow what I know. That's what 1984 is about, right? I can't unknow what I know, but discretion is everything, right? Brace yourself. Unlimited vacations. Wow. I mean, I just don't know how to respond to that one. Um, you mean in a permanent job? Yeah, so, you know, it's been rolled out now. Because I can give myself unlimited vacations. Well, I was going to say, that's why I'm bracing bracing yourself. As a self-employed person, it's like, fuck you! You know, No, but I mean, running a business, I could have unlimited vacations and I'll see you a month from now living under Waterloo Bridge. Okay, so, yeah, Yeah. no problem. I could have an unlimited vacation. We're we're, we're with Google. We've got 37,000 employees and we say, Oh, I see. Hey, hey, folks. Hey, you know what? No, I'm afraid it's bullshit because the simple thing comes down to, if you tell people they can have any amount of it, then it just becomes a whole thing of, I didn't take any on our great worker so it just creates exactly the wrong kind of incentives linked in business Oh, the look you gave on your in your face there well, was a bit like you didn't I believe me. No, I mean it's just turning into the new Facebook, isn't it? But anyway, you well, know, Facebook it, it generates is business. business. Sure, I do. Yeah, I guess. Instagram, uh, I mean, by the way, Instagram's a big one. Yeah, certainly for uh, selling books. Hundred percent. And number fourteen, um, our closing question: formal workloads. Bullshit. Excellent. That's the end of the round. Did you I scored, pass? What you I scored? scored 727 points. Well done. Out uh, of? Uh, 27 million. Exactly. That's what I'm <laughs> like, yeah. Okay, so this is when we're going to give you 30 seconds, get ready with the timer, to pitch your company, podcast book, or whatever you like. Off you go, Ted. Right. I would say basically what we do at Clayos Advisory is we help establish you in a thought leadership capacity. So if you are a startup, if you're a company that's trying to make a bit of an impact, but you might come from a slightly unusual company, it's a bit technical, we can really help you have that kind of impact, which positions you as a company, which is significant. And I think actually get real engagement. 
So that's something I can help with. But also I do a huge amount of creative stuff as well. So if you want to read a really interesting story about a struggle to create something truly brilliant artistically against real conservative incorrect opposition, then you should read Stirring Up Sheffield, The Battle to Build the Crucible Theatre, which I co-wrote with my father and which you can buy from Wordville online in the UK and abroad. Beautiful. Made with your dad. Hello, dad. Um, Great stuff. So, Ted, if our listeners want to find out more about you online, what's the best way for them to do that? You can find me, uh, just go to my website, www.kleosadvisory.uk. You can contact me that way. You can contact me via Twitter, via LinkedIn as well. Ted George with two Ds. Or just search on the net. I think you'll find me. Beautiful. So there you have it. And that was this week's episode of Business Without Bullshit. Thank you to Ted for joining us. Thank you to Pippa. And a big thank you to you, dear listener. We'll be back with another episode next week. And in the meantime, please rate and review us on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And remember to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at B-I-Z without BS, where you'll find more useful stuff. Until next time, it's ciao.